the Bible is a book of truth. And as we read it, as we study it, we understand that truth exists on different levels. There is, as we look at the Bible, plain truth. And that is obvious, clearly communicated facts. Things like the historical record of what took place at a given time or a given situation. Things like direct commands given to us from God. Things like honor your parents. They're very plain. There's nothing hidden, nothing secret. It's just for us to read, understand, and then decide what we're going to do with it. Plain truth. There is also hidden truth. That is truth that unfolds through proper interpretation of the text. Things like Jesus' parables, where there's a story that's intended to teach. And if you can understand the interpretation of the parable, you can extract the truth that's being given. Many of the Proverbs contain hidden truth. It requires the ability to interpret and then apply it to your life. We see that even in the historical record, underneath the surface story, God likes to hide nuggets of hidden truth that's there. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, Solomon wrote, and he said that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. I think God likes to hide truth in the pages of his word so that we can dig it out and then understand in greater measure who he is and what it is that he wants to say to us. Now, before you become mystified by what I just said, hidden truth, understand this, that hidden truth always points us back to surface truth. That is, it doesn't tell us something new or something that we couldn't get just by reading what's plainly given to us but rather it serves to bring depth or to illustrate the things that God has laid out. It doesn't change the revelation. It just illustrates and brings depth. Now, why does God do this? I believe probably many reasons, but one of them is that because God delights in revealing to us his truth as we search. He longs for us to get alone with him and wrestle through a passage of scripture and then allow his spirit to illuminate it in our hearts and minds and bring out that truth as we seek to know God in a fuller and richer way. And so God puts it there to strengthen our relationship with him. And thus we come to the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Now, we learned last week that he is the successor to Elijah, the prophet who we left. And Elisha is a very fascinating character in scripture. His life was surrounded by the supernatural. He did more miracles than even Elijah. In fact, he asked for a double portion of the Spirit, and he does nearly twice as many miracles in the time of his ministry than Elijah the prophet did. Only Jesus and Moses did more miracles than Elijah did. And so we see as we look at his life many things that are taught to us through the miraculous things that he did. Elisha was vastly different than Elijah. Elijah, his forerunner or his uh, father in the faith, if you would, Elijah was a man who was very withdrawn. He was quiet, introverted. He was very much a loner, a man given to highs and lows. He was elusive. He would be there to give a message and then he wouldn't be found or seen for months or years at a time. He was very intense 
And he was extremely ruthless if you got in God's way on his mission. We saw that, calling down fire from heaven and slaying the 450 prophets of Baal. A very intense character. Elisha, on the other hand, is very relational. He's available. He's personable, approachable. He's much more laid back and gracious, very gracious, as we'll see. And he's much more pastoral in his leadership approach. Elijah, a leader from a distance, but Elisha, very much a shepherd, a pastor's heart in this man. Again, Elijah asked for a double portion of the spirit that had been put upon Elijah. And the response of Elijah when Elisha asked for that was that you're asking for a hard thing. Now, somebody asked me last week after the study, hey, you brought out that it isn't an easy thing to be filled with God's spirit because of the pressures and difficulties that you go through. Well, where are the pressures and difficulties in Elisha's life? Because we don't see him going through the great highs and lows, the beatings, if you would, that Elijah did. Where is the beating? Where is the pressure in Elisha's life? The answer is this. It's there. He just handles it way differently than Elisha or Elijah did. See, the hardness of the anointing that Elijah described that Elisha asked for is not so much in the specific events that you go through, you know, the tough times or the losing of a job or the losing of a loved one or a sickness or a persecution. It's not so much in those events individually, but really the difficulty of walking in that depth of spirituality is in the constantness of it. See, if God comes upon your life and he puts a calling and an anointing on you, it isn't something that you can turn on and off during office hours. You can't just say, God, I want to be filled with your spirit, but I want to do it from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then I want to punch the clock and go home and do my own thing. No. If God's going to use your life, it's a 24-7 calling because he's the God that never sleeps. And sometimes God will twist you at 2 a.m., because he wants to drive something into you, and you can't turn it off at that time. And Elijah knew that. He understood the constantness of what it was to walk with God that closely, and he said, wow, you're asking a hard thing. The other thing to consider is that the difficult things are there in Elisha's life. We see that he was surrounded by the entire Syrian army. The whole Syrian army surrounded just him with the intent to kill him. The only thing was it didn't really bother him that much. He slept right through it. It didn't, it, you know, whereas Elijah would have freaked out and run like a chicken, Elisha just says, eh, go back to sleep. God's got us. It's no big deal. Another instance, the king of Israel gets fed up with the famine and he wants to come and cut off Elisha's head. And Elisha's not really worried about it. He just says to the guy by the door, he says, hey, when the messenger of the king comes, just open the door real hard and knock the sword out of his hand. And then he just delivers a message. It doesn't really even bother him all that much. Elijah freaks out, calls down fire from heaven. Elisha? Not really bothered too much by it. What's the point? Here's the point. The different people handle the same things in different ways according to how God has wired them. Everyone is different. We understand that. There was only one Elijah. There's only one Elisha. And there's only one you. Often, the mistake that we make is that we think that if we want to be mightily used by God, then we have to be exactly like those that have been used by God in generations before us. That's not true. If God wanted two Elijahs, he would have made two Elijahs and no Elishas because that's what he would have wanted to do. But he didn't do that. 
And he didn't make two of someone else and none of you. He made you and he made you the way you are and he wired you the way you are because he wants to manifest himself in your world through who you are. So you don't have to be like anyone else. And Elisha learns that lesson early on. Now we can learn from other servants of God, but God made us unique. So thus tonight we learn from Elisha. We see a series of miracles with a message. Fifteen things through these chapters, these eight, nine, ten chapters that Elisha does that teach us concerning our walk with God as well. Where we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 2, the first thing that happens is in the embracing of a new era. It says that he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he smote the waters, and he said, Where is the God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, so the waters part, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And so we see succession taking place as the mantle of Elijah now falls upon Elisha. And he picks up where Elijah left off, parting the waters. And these young prophets bow down to him, not to worship him, but just to recognize in reverence the spirit that's upon him in the place of position that God has given to him. Now it says that they said unto him, verse 16, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Let us go and look for Elijah, lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain. What if God dropped him, they said, or into some valley? And he said, you shall not send. He said, I was there. I saw it. He was taken up into heaven. You're not going to find him. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. And so they sent, therefore, 50 men, and they sought three days, but they found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? It's time to say goodbye to what is old and to embrace what is new, what God is doing now in Israel. We see that the sons of the prophets want to go and look for something that's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That's human tendency, isn't it? It's part of us that we want to hold on to the past and we want to formulate our future based on what has been done in the past. Now we saw that Elisha did that right at the very beginning, didn't he? What was the first phrase out of his mouth when the mantle fell from heaven? He said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He was looking for something that would look like or be a replica of what God did while Elijah was on the earth. And yet God wanted to do something new. Here we see it with the sons of the prophets. They say, hey, we recognize that God is with you and that the waters parted, but we still want to look for Elijah. Where are the days of old when God poured out his spirit? He fell upon the prophets of Baal. We must go and look for the God who did things in a certain way at a certain time. What's the point? God is not the God of Elijah, nor is he the God of Elisha, nor is he the God of the past. He's the God of heaven, and he's the God of now. See, when we look for God in the past, we miss out often on what God wants to do in the present right now. 
When Moses asked God and he said, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them I am that I am sent you. Wait, no, no, what's your name? My name is I am. What kind of name is that? They're going to look at me sideways if I tell them that's your name. But God says, that's who I am. I'm not I was and I'm not I will be. I am right now. And that's what God always wants to be. Do you realize that the only moment you truly have is right now? I mean, the past is gone. You can't reform it or change it. The future is uncertain and not guaranteed. The only thing you have is now. And isn't it comforting that that's what God says he will be? He says, I am with you right now. 99% of human thought, our thought lives, dwell upon things that either happened in the past or thinking anxiously about things that will be in the future or won't be in the future. And only 1% is reserved for here and now. And God says, that's where I am. I am in right now. We look for God in the past. We worry about God for the future. But God says, I'm with you. I'm with you right now. Stop trying to figure God out, whether through what he did with Spurgeon and Luther or Smith or anyone else in times past, and just walk with him today. God, what do you want to do today? How do you want to manifest yourself in my world through my life today? Oftentimes we think we have to pray like someone else, someone from the past. If I think like, or if I journal like, or if I witness like someone else, God is waiting for us to accept us, ourselves, and to allow him to just work through our lives as we are. Now what Elijah realized, or Elisha rather, realized at this point, is that God didn't need another Elijah, and that he didn't have to be like Elijah. Is that the spirit of God upon Elijah is what made him great in what he was. And that same spirit was available to Elisha just the same. And the spirit can use Elisha just like he used Elijah. And the spirit of God can use us in the same way that he used Elisha or Elijah or Moses or anyone else. It's up to us to yield to him. And so he says, I told you you wouldn't find him. It's a whole new thing going on here. Well, it says that the men of the city said unto Elisha, this is in Jericho now. Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. But the water is not, and the ground is barren. And he said, bring me a new cruise, or a new bowl, a new jar, and put salt therein. And so they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying which Elisha uh, had spoke. They come to Elisha, the first of these miracles that he does now as he interacts with these people, and they say, hey, we have a problem in this city. The situation is pleasant. We're in the gate of the promised land. It's Jericho. It's visually fertile soil. It's great grazing land, great for growing. It's beautiful. We can look out and we can see to the west over the Jordan River, way off into the distance. We're beautifully situated in the city, and everything here is right, but there's just one problem, bad water. Jericho is situated only eight or nine miles from the Dead Sea at a very low elevation, far below sea level, just like the Dead Sea is. And apparently a vein of water in their well spring system was being polluted by the Dead Sea water, brackish water that was there, and so the water was no good. Nothing could grow. Nothing would work. 
Some even believed that even the women were barren. They weren't able to have children because of the poor quality of the water that's there. And so they come to Elisha and they say, hey, is there anything that you can do to help us? We like living here, but we can't live here without good water. So is there any way to help? And so he says, bring me a jar and put salt in it. The problem, contaminated water. The solution, a jar of salt? What, how, confusion? What does this mean? Understand this, that everything in the Bible means something. That it isn't just here as factual information to tell us things that happened historically. But rather, when God does something, especially when God does something mysteriously like this, he's seeking to communicate to us. He wants to talk to us, teach us. So what's the lesson in this? The situation in the city speaks of their outward living conditions. All is good. They're safe, they're provided for, everything is good in the city. The water speaks of the sustaining source. Often scripturally it is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, living water. Jesus said in John chapter 7, he said, Come to me, all you that thirst, and torrents of living water will gush out from within. And it says this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. So the water in the Bible, often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Water, also a symbol of the word of God. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and he said, wash them with the water of the word, the word of God, likened unto water. In the Bible often, the spirit and the word uh, typified or symbolically spoken of through water. So what's the idea here? The idea is that outwardly all was good, but there's a problem with the life source. Essentially, the people would say, we have everything we need, and all should be good in our lives, but it's not. We're not happy. We should be happy. We have enough money. We have a place to live. We have good transportation. We have jobs. Everything is good here, but for some reason, there's something not right with the life source. There's something wrong inside. There's something that's twisted, something deep within where life is supposed to come from, and it's wrong. And it's barren. And there's death. What in the world is going on? So Elisha takes salt in a new bowl and he pours it in. So what does it speak of? Salt in a bowl speaks to us of the influence that God has on a place through his people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13, he said, you are the salt of the earth. Again, Jesus said in another place, Mark chapter 9, verse 50, to his disciples, he said to them, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In both of those contexts, he's speaking of the influence of God in you, in your immediate surrounding. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Now, we understand that illustration. If you sprinkle salt on your food, you don't cover it with salt. You don't put half a cup. You just put some salt and it's scattered about. And then its flavor, its essence, what it does as it works in the food, that becomes evident to you as you then eat it. And Jesus is saying, hey, you are the salt of the earth. So go influence the world for God. Be the salt, something that brings distinction, that preserves freshness. Be that. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus, same thing. He said, have salt within yourselves and be at peace with one another. What was the occasion? Some of the disciples were upset that people were preaching Jesus, but they weren't walking with Jesus in the same way that the apostles were. And John said, should we rebuke them? 
And Jesus begins to say, you don't, you, you don't understand. If they're not for us, or if they're not against us, they're, they're on our side. And then he gives them a discourse, and then he says, hey, guys, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let the influence of God in you affect your relationships with one another. The Apostle Paul would say in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, he said, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. He picks up on the same illustration, and he says, hey, the way that you speak to other people, let it carry with it the essence of the life of Christ within you. Salt in a vessel always speaks of the influence that God has in you, working through your life uh, as you interact within the world. So how do we apply what takes place here to, to our lives? What does this mean? What's the message within this miracle? Listen. The thing that sweetens the spiritual condition of any situation is God's people filled with God's spirit letting their light shine in their place. So in your home life, you might say, you know what? All should be good. We have a great place to live and the bills are being paid and there's food in the refrigerator, but for some reason there's just a bitterness within our home. There's no life there. It's not a happy place. The situation is sour internally. What's going on? Why is that there? Well, here's what you do. Bring the influence of God's spirit by letting it be real in your life. Let your speech be seasoned with salt as you interact with one another. Do the things that God says to do in serving one another, in dying to self. Let the influence of God be real. Pour the salt into the well, the influence of God in your life, and watch the situation change. You might say, my work environment, I have a job, but my goodness, I should be happy. A lot of people don't have jobs and wish they did. Many would trade places with me if they could, but yet I just want to be away from mine because it's such a hostile environment. It's such a terrible place. Do what Elisha did. Take some salt, put it in your vessel, and then pour it in the well. Do the same thing. Bring the influence of God's spirit. Have salt within yourselves. He will heal the waters and he will prevail. He always does because he says my people are going to be the head and not the tail. And he says that whatsoever you do will prosper. So do what Jesus said. Have salt in yourselves. A church situation, it might be the same thing. I should be happy, but I'm not. Listen, be the salt of the earth. Now, the only way for the salt to lose its savor, remember Jesus said if the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing? Salt can't lose its savor. There's only one way for salt to lose its savor. Do you know what it is? It's to dilute it to a point where its flavor is imperceptible. For you, that would mean that your life is so diluted by other things that the salt can no longer be sensed within your life. So let it be concentrated again. Get back close to God Allow him to influence you and then allow him to influence others through you. Another thing I like about this little passage here about the healing of the waters in Jericho is the grace that Elisha shows and that God really shows through Elisha to these people. See, I can almost hear Elijah if Elijah had been there and they asked him this question. In fact, they probably wanted to ask Elijah, but no one dared. They said, hey, could you help us with the water here? Elijah would have said, you're not even supposed to be in this city. Remember? When Joshua destroyed it, Joshua cursed whoever built the city of Jericho again. They weren't even supposed to be in that city. That's what Elijah would have said. Hey, you shouldn't even be here. Of course you don't have good water. But Elisha doesn't say that. He says, hey, bring some salt, bring a cruise. Let's fix this problem. You know why I like that so much? Because so often I think that because of something that I have screwed up in my life, 
an area of disobedience. Maybe something that is a part of my life now that really shouldn't be because of decisions that I made, but now it is because it just is. Maybe a second marriage or maybe a criminal record. There's something that's attached to you that really shouldn't be there at all. And you say, well, now God can never use my life. I'm kind of under a curse, if you would. Not true. God is willing to restore and redeem our lives to the fullest, no matter what our past has within it. And no matter what you find yourself wearing the scars of here tonight, God is not looking at you condemned, saying, yeah, you can be saved, but this area of your life is always going to be brackish and bitter. No. The influence of God heals all things. Jesus said, I make all things new. Miracles intended to teach. Well, he moves on from there, and we've come to Elisha's Elijah moment. He only has one. Verse 23, it says that he went up from there unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city. And they mocked him, and they said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back, and he looked on them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and they tore forty and two children of them. And he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from thence he then returned to Samaria. Now, before you gasp and you say, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? Understand, first of all, that when it says children here, the word in the Hebrew speaks of someone, anyone that could be from the age of a toddler all the way up to about age 30. So this is not like these little kids on a playground that all of a sudden they're like, hey, look at the bald guy. And he's like, get him, God. You know, and, the, and then the two, ah! You know, and you got this kind of horror movie scene with the whole whole thing here. The word for, for children is used of Joseph when he is about to be exalted to be prime minister. It happened around 30 years old. Same word is used of Isaac when he was offered by Abraham. Same thing when he was about 30 years old. So this is just irreverent youths acting like little kids. That's what's going on right here. And what they're doing is that they are mocking, not Elijah, but they are mocking God. Because what they're doing is they're saying, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. See, by this time, word had spread about Elijah's miraculous departure, that he had been taken up by God. And what these young people are irreverently saying to him is, ha ha, yeah, like we're going to believe that. Why don't you go up just like him? We don't believe he did, and we don't want you here either. And so they're basically scoffing at what God did with Elijah, and they're saying, we have no need nor desire for you. So these people are not mocking him necessarily, but they're mocking God. And Elisha is angered at the fact that they're mocking him. I believe he's also wounded by the fact that he still misses Elijah. Elijah was his friend. The two walked together. He had trained under Elijah for the past 10 years, serving him, walking with him. It says that the two of them went together and walked when Elijah was taken. Elisha's response was, my father, my father, the horsemen of Israel and the chariot thereof. He was attached to Elijah, and now he was gone, and he felt the same thing we feel when death strikes close to home. And now that is rubbing those fresh wounds deeply as these kids are just mocking him in this way. And I believe that it wounded him. And third of all, I think he was just plain a little bit scared. I mean, if 42 of these kids were mauled by bears, how many of them were there? I'm sure some got away without being mauled. There's only two bears, fast bears. Love to see those bears. But how many of them were there? And did he perhaps feel a little bit intimidated? And so as he goes, he curses them 
in the name of the Lord. Not in his own name, not because he's offended, but because they're offending God, mocking God. So he curses them in the name of the Lord, and then the bears come. What if it was you? How cool would that be? I mean, you would be like, that, thank you, a double anointing, this is awesome. You know, I'm going to actually put little bears on my business card so that when I hand it to people, you know, they know not to cross me. Not to, no, no. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think Elisha liked this. He never does this again. He never does anything like it again throughout the rest of the course of his ministry. So what happened here? What's going on? And what's, what's the lesson in this? Why did God do this? I think it tells us a couple of things. First of all, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I think for Elisha, the message from God was clear in all this. Listen, if you want to serve me, understand that you're going to be hated by the world. They're never going to accept you. You're never going to be liked. Even if they see miracles that you do and recognize that the presence of God is in your life, you're never going to be accepted by the world. It is at enmity with God. The two kingdoms are so contrary to one another. And you're going to be hated. Understand that. And I think God was communicating that to Elisha in this thing. I think the other uh, lesson that Elisha learned from this is that God has his back. Is that if God has to send bears out of the wood to defend him, in a time when his life is in danger, that God's going to do it. And, and this is a lesson that Elisha carries with him for the rest of his life. I believe it's why Elisha can rest while he's surrounded by the Syrian army. He knows, hey, no matter what God has to do, he's going to protect me. It's why Elisha can relax when the king sends a messenger to separate his head from his body, which is the word that the king uses. He says, God's going to protect me. He's got my back in it, no matter what. I also believe the lesson is, be careful what you say about servants of God that are follically challenged. <laughs> no. I, I, that's funny. I just said it because it's funny. But now that I've got your attention, I think if there's any message that is not being given here, that is not the message. There is nowhere in the Bible where Jesus says that any servant of his should be expected to be treated reverently, especially by unbelievers. So I don't think that's the message. I've heard it taught that way. Be careful what you say about the anointed of the Lord. Haven't you heard what the bears did when they cursed or, you know, mocked the... No, 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 listen. Be careful that you don't mock God. His servants, we can take it. We expect it. We deserve it. But God does not. And I believe that's important for us to understand, that we should treat God and his message very reverently. Chapter 3 uh, as we move forward, it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. Now, we looked at Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, last week. He reigned two years and then he died. He had no son, so his brother took over the throne. And thus Jehoram now, the son of Ahab, his brother, takes over in the 18th year, reigns for 12. It says that he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, which he, uh, in which he made Israel to sin. He departed not um, therefrom. 
in the whole thing. And so uh, we see that he's bad, but he's not as bad. And as we move into verse 4 now, we see the details of Moab's rebellion. Remember in 1-1 last week, the first verse of the book, it says that Moab rebelled in the first year of Ahaziah. Well, now we get the details of that beginning here. It says, And Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep master. And he rendered unto the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with the wool. So the taxes that were paid by Moab to Israel were a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with their wool. That's a lot of, of, of produce. You know, yes, money, you know, livestock, you know, that's a huge tax revenue. And what we understand here is that Jehoram and Israel is not prepared to just let that go uh, without a fight. And so it says, but it came to pass that when Ahab was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram, it says, went out of Samaria the same time and he numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And so he sends a message now to the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the better of the rebellious halves of Israel at this time, and uh, sends the, the, the message to him. And he says, will you go with me against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, the way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, so three kings now, and they fetched a compass of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the host and the cattle that followed them. And so here's what happens is that now Jehoram has an issue with the king of Moab, so he sends a messenger to Jehoshaphat in the south and says, hey, will you come fight with me? And Jehoshaphat says, hey, you're my brother. I am as you are. My horses are your horses. Now, does that sound familiar? Remember when Ahab had to fight against Ben-Hadad? And Ahab sent a message to the same guy, Jehoshaphat. He said the same thing. Hey, come fight with me. And Jehoshaphat said the same exact thing. And it almost cost him his life. Remember the story? Remember Ahab said, hey, I got an idea. You sit up here in the chariot and wear my clothing and my crown, and I'll go down and and fight like one of them, and we'll pretend that you're me. And all the army said, hey, kill no one, just kill the king. you know. And then Jehoshaphat screamed. That's where you get the, 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 the phrase, jump in Jehoshaphat, you know, because he sees all these people looking just at him. They realize it's not him. And then Ahab gets himself killed with a stray arrow, you know, and the whole thing. And, and, and Jehoshaphat barely escapes with his life. What we learn is that he didn't learn because now his son says the same thing to him. And he says, yeah, I'm as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. Let's go out and do this thing. And so they join now with the king of Edom, who's also an enemy king. They travel for seven days. And then one of them looks and says, hey, did you bring the water? Water? I thought you had the water. There's no water? And they have a whole army of people, and now they have absolutely no water. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? Verse 10. It says, and the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So Israel king gives up. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. 
So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, here's Jehoshaphat, and I know that none of us do this. But his philosophy of, of life was ready, fire, aim. Let's do it. And then he gets into it, and then he hits a roadblock, and he says, maybe we should pray. He gets it wrong every time. I do this. Do you do this? Sometimes we think, okay, yeah, I'm just going to go forward with this. This must be God. And then we just do it. And then we run into problems. We say, well, maybe we should pray. I think the lesson is clear. Jehoshaphat has to learn it twice. Listen, pray before you act. That's very simple wisdom, very good wisdom. Pray. Ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Well, we don't have to, we, 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 we touched that when we hit Jehoshaphat last time. He doesn't pray, but now Elisha comes. It says, verse 13, that when Elisha came unto the king of Israel, he said, what have I to do with you? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So Elisha rebukes Jehoram, the king of Israel, Ahab's son. And he says, hey, you go to the false prophet. And and he says, no, we're going to die. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. God made a promise to King David that he would maintain one of his seed upon the throne of Israel. And for the sake of the promise that God gave to his people, I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat. And if it were not for his presence here, I wouldn't even deal with you. But then he says, now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass that when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord uh, came upon Elisha. Now, this speaks to us a little bit about the power of music in our worship. Now, I don't understand the physics, and every single time I try to touch some kind of scientific connection to the Bible, I always get it wrong, but I don't care. So, you know, you guys can tell me how messed up I'm, I am about this, but, but, but basically, as far as I understand it, is that the physics behind why music is pleasing to us is because of the vibration or the harmony that exists in the vibration of the sound waves. That, that when there's harmony in sound waves and we hear it in its right tune or in tune, it, it does something inside of us where it resonates with us and the response to it is whatever the, the, the response of music is. And we understand it and we feel it. And maybe it's even indefinable in the whole thing. But spiritually, it's symbolic of the uh, pleasing resonance that exists between heaven and earth when we worship God. You understand? When Jesus was to be born and the angel came to announce the birth, his opening statement, his phrase was, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. Now we all know that verse because it comes to us on multiple Christmas cards every December. And even if you don't never been around the Bible, you've heard that verse before. In fact, some of you are going, hey, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I thought it was just a song, you know. No, that's what the angel declared uh, concerning the coming, the first coming of Christ. But it was more than just a declaration or a phrase to get their attention. It's actually a fact. It's actually an order that when glory is given to God in the highest, then there is peace on earth and goodwill towards men. 
When man glorifies God and puts him in his proper place, then there is harmony between heaven and earth. And the result of that is peace. And see, harmonious music does that to us physically, but worship puts us in harmony with heaven spiritually. Now, when we hear harmony musically, it pleases us, right? We go, oh, yeah, that's great. It's perfect. Awesome. It moves us. When we hear disharmony, it also moves us. We go, ah, ah, stop, please. Turn it off. Turn their mic down. Throw that guitar in the garbage can. You know, we, we can't stand it when, things are, when there's a lack of harmony. It hurts us. Same thing is true spiritually. When there's harmony between heaven and earth, there's peace. It's good. When there's, what's the word I'm looking for? Discordant? That's it. When it's discordant between heaven and earth, there, there, there's something where, where we just want to run in the whole thing. Now, I don't understand how it works, but I appreciate it. I appreciate the place of music in worship. It does something. It's powerful. Elisha taps into it here. Well, it says after this, uh, he now speaks. He says, verse 16, he said, Thus saith the Lord. He says, make this valley full of ditches. Grab your shovels and start digging, he says. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water that you may drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. In other words, this is the smaller of the two things that God is going to do for you. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. And you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city, and you shall fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning, get him, somebody. <laughs> he said, call the bears, you know. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Aren't you glad I'm not Elisha? You know. It says, It came to pass in the morning when the meat offering was offered that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom. See? I'm telling you, don't mess with the word of God, you know? <laughs> that the country was then um, filled with water. Seven days into this military campaign, things dry up and they need water. Two commands are given by Elijah to the people. Number one is dig, dig ditches, dig deep, because this valley is going to be filled with water. And then number two, once you are refreshed and revived, then go into the battle with purpose. And you destroy every good tree, every good piece of land. You shut up every well, and you make an utter destruction of that enemy that is a stumbling block to you. That's the command that he gives. And it says that when the time of the grain offering came, so early in the morning, it says that then the, the ditches were filled. Now understand that the grain offering was the only offering of all the offerings of Israel that involved man's effort. See, all the others, you would offer a lamb or a bull or a dove, God made all those things. He made the lambs and the bulls and the doves. But when you would bring a grain offering or an offering of your harvest, it represented your sweat. And so the grain offering was a picture of service, our service. It's God partnering with us to bring forth produce. And that's what farming really is. It's our sweat, but God's increase. And so the grain offering was symbolic of our service. It's a service offering unto the Lord. 
So what's the interpretation of this? Is that that God is our supplier, but often it's a two-way street. They needed water. Again, a picture of their spiritual substance, sustenance. And God would supply it, but he said to them, you've got a part to play, you ding ditches. Now, if they dug a little scratch in the soil, they would have gotten a scratch worth of water. If they dug a five-gallon trench, they would have gotten five gallons of water. If they dug a swimming pool hole, they would have gotten a swimming pool full of water. God would equivocate their effort by reciprocating with water. He would give them according to what they did. And then he says, take what you're given and do the most with it. Destroy the Moabites. What's the application for you and me? There are times in our life, isn't there, where things dry up? Where we kind of find ourselves seven days into a spiritual campaign, if you would, or seven years into our walk with the Lord. And all of a sudden we find, where's the Lord? I read the word of God, but it seems as though it's just like reading an old newspaper. I get nothing out of its words, out of its pages. Its promises offer me no hope and encouragement. I can remember a time when they did, but not anymore. I go to the closet of prayer, but as I pray, I find that God's not answering or my prayers aren't taking off. It's almost like the, 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 the words are just bouncing off the walls and coming back to me. What's the deal? Why is it so dry? Why am I going through this season in my life? Understand something. You have an entire field of truth laid out before you, even right now in your very lap, a whole field of truth. The Bible says you have the promise of access to God anytime, 24-7, because you are a son and daughter of the living God. You can go to him in prayer, and the Bible says he's with you always, even to the end of the age, whether you feel it or not. And I believe sometimes in our drought seasons, the word of the Lord to us is dig. Dig. Get into the word of God. Well, I don't feel like it. Don't matter. Dig. Dig in, and the water will come. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 7. It's an interesting verse, but God looking at the people and he sees their sour, sorry condition and he says, none of you stir up yourself to seek me. And sometimes there is something to us grabbing our shovel spiritually, digging into the word of God, stirring up our soul, pressing into the things of God and watching the water miraculously flow again. I find such truth in that. It's amazing for me. Sometimes, I mean, I'm forced to study the word because I have to teach it. And there's times I'll spend a whole day laboring on something and it is so dry. It's like concrete soil trying to dig through and find truth and application. And for myself or for anybody else, it's like a futile attempt. But I can't, I have no choice. I have to do it. Because if I don't, I won't be ready for study. And so I go, oh man, I'll come home and I'll say, Georgia, it's going to be a rough study. I, I don't even have a clue what this whole passage is about. I, I'm, I don't even want to do this. I quit, you know, go through one of those things. And then I'll go to sleep that night. And by the time I wake up in the morning, the trenches are full. All of a sudden, the passage is open to me in ways that I never understood. What I was despairing of the night before, I'm excited about in the morning. And I believe it happens. It happens for every one of us. If you're dry, dig in. That's the word of the Lord to you in this. Maybe you're in a drought spiritually here tonight. The word to you, dig in. Faith is shown by action. Well, the battle ensues, verse 21. It says, And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward, and they stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. So as the Moabites look down now into this valley and they see the sun reflecting off this water, the appearance to them is that of blood. 
And they said, this is blood, and the kings are surely slain. And they have smitten one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. They assume that all the kings turned on each other, and all they're going to find in the valley is dead bodies. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites, so that they fled from before them, but they went forward, smiting the Moabites, even in their country. And they beat down the cities. And on every good piece of land, they cast every man his stone, and they filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kir Harasheth left they the stones thereof, howbeit the slingers went around it and smote it. And so they obey the word of the Lord and taking, taking the, uh, they didn't take the territory, they just destroyed the territory. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him, and they returned to their own land. This was the problem with the Moabites, is that their idol or their god was Chemosh and Molech. They were the gods of human sacrifice. They would heat up the Molechs and they would offer their children unto these gods for the sake of having fertility and blessing within their land. And God said, that's an abomination from before me forever. I will never command that to be done. And if you allow that influence in your society, God said, then it will corrupt you to a place of judgment. And thus that was the reason for God to have these cultures decimated from before Israel. Well, when the Israelites saw this offering, they just said, let's go home. <laughs> let's get out of here. We don't even want to be around this. And so they departed and they returned to the land. Now, interestingly, this is the last battle with Moab in the Bible. Moab will be mentioned again and prophesied of in Isaiah and other places, but this will be the last time Israel will battle against uh, Moab in the whole thing. We're going to take the first seven verses quickly of chapter four. So don't get nervous. You're saying, oh, he's getting ambitious. Don't worry, just seven verses. They took the clock off the back wall. I really, I, I'm, I am so set free right now. It's, you, it, this feels so good. And don't say a word because the bears... The third miracle, final miracle with a message tonight. It says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be slaves. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your handmaid does not have anything in the house except for a pot of oil. It would be olive oil for cooking. Then he said, go and borrow vessels or containers, Tupperware, Rubbermaid. That's what it would be. From all your neighbors, even empty containers, borrow not a few. Get as many as you can. Just go borrow as many containers as you can. And when you are coming, you will shut the door upon you and upon your sons and you will pour out into all those containers, and you shall set aside the ones that are full. So she went from him, and she shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the containers to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, 
that she said unto her son, bring me yet another container. And he said unto her, there is not another container. And the oil then stayed. Then she came and she told the man of God. And he said, go now and sell the oil and pay the debt and live thou and thy children upon the rest. Now, debts would only be released once every 50 years. And this woman losing her husband would find herself in dire straits because now she's a slave to the creditors. And so the people from J.P. Morgan, they come knock on the door and they say, hey, unless you can pay up, we're going to take your land and we're going to take your sons as servants and they'll be sold to pay off the debt. And so she comes to Elisha and she says, this is my situation. What do you have? Just one jar of oil, that's it. There's no money left. There's no food in the cabinet. There's no money. There's no gold. There's nothing to give. All they've got is the oil. Borrow containers. Pour out and fill up every container that you can get your hands on. She had to act in faith in response to what Elisha said, but she had no other choice. And so she responds. She gains these containers, and we see God do an incredible miracle in, uh, in bringing forth the, the, the oil. Now, what does this mean? What's the message behind this miracle? In the Bible, oil, again, always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The anointing oil that would be placed upon the priests and the kings in the Old Testament to anoint them for their service, a symbol of the Spirit of God coming upon them, enabling them to fulfill their ministry. The oil for the lampstand within the tabernacle and later the temple, it was symbolic of the heavenly flame, the fire from heaven fueling the light towards the world, the light of God, the lamp of God, the the Spirit of God in the world. The vessel or the jar, the container in the Bible is always a picture of the Christian, the believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay, clay pots or containers, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Our bodies in the Bible are likened unto the containers, the oil, the spirit, the containers, our bodies. The miracle is this, and here's the message. is What Elisha was saying to her, what God is saying to us, he's saying, listen, you are, we are all spiritually bankrupt. We all have nothing. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are you when you realize that you do not possess the essence of life or the power of heaven. It's not in you. You don't have it. You're bankrupt. But if you want it, there's a very simple way to attain it. Take what you have and pour it into others. Take the oil that's in your container and pour it into someone else. Pour yourself spiritually into them. Invest the things that God has given into your life into their lives, and the result will be that you will have always enough. That as much as you pour into someone else's life, God is going to give you that much more. That's the way it always works spiritually. If you want more of God's spirit, more of God's presence, more of God's power in your life, the way to get it is to pour out what's in your vessel into another. And you'll have more. 
and it won't stop multiplying until the time that you stop pouring out. And the result of it is that the kingdom of God grows. Because as you pour into vessels, you enable and equip them to pour into vessels. And God's message, God's spirit, God's presence is multiplied within the world. That's the key. That's how it's going to happen in the thing. We'll pause there. We'll pick up next week with the great woman of Shunem in verse 8. The musicians can come, but in conclusion tonight. There's been a lot of substance on the topic of refreshing or revival. We saw three miracles tonight that Elisha did. He turned the bitter water into fresh water again. He took dry and barren ground and he saturated it with water again. And he took a small amount of oil, just one jar that remained, and he multiplied it into fill as many containers as he could. The common denominator in all three of those miracles of refreshing was this, is that without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. Now, only God can heal the bitter waters, but salt had to be put in. What's the command? Jesus said, have salt in yourselves. Have peace amongst yourselves. If you want refreshing in your home, if your home is dried up, listen, just bring salt into it. You say, man, I hear what you're saying, but you have no idea how hard that is for me. I don't feel kind, peaceful feelings towards him or her or them. Do you know how difficult it would be for me to have salt in myself within my house to obey that command? It doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter how you feel. Jesus didn't say, feel kindness and then show it. He said, show kindness. But here's what happens when you do, is that you'll feel kindness after the fact. See, actions always produce feelings. We don't go to the gym because we feel like it, right? We go to the gym so that we feel like it, right? (laughs) You know, because we feel like, oh, I'm dying in this body, you know, this whole thing. That's what always happens, even with negative things. When you do something sinful, you know what your sin is. How do you feel after you sinned? You, f- you feel the effects of the action after you do it. Well, the same thing happens positively. Jesus says, show kindness. Speak life into them. Love them like Christ loved the church. Lay down your life. Put yourself last. And you know what will happen? Is that the waters will become fresh again. You'll watch the atmosphere in your home change. Without him, We can't, but without us, he won't. He says, have salt within yourselves. Put the salt in. Only he can saturate the parched ground. But the command he gives to us is dig. Dig trenches. Press in, and you'll see as I walk with you, we come into your life. Only he can multiply the oil and provide more. But the command that he gives is if you want more of me, if you need more of me, then pour out into someone else. If you want more of God, give away what you have. Faith looks like something, doesn't it? Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the substance. That's visible, isn't it? It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that cannot be seen. And then he goes through in the rest of Hebrews 11 and he talks about the faith of every Old Testament saint. And all he talks about is their actions, what they did. Faith looks like something. God gives us direction. He says, you want to be refreshed? You want to be revived? Have salt in yourself. Dig into my word and pour into someone else's life. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word that you give us. And we ask, Lord, that you would make it real and that you'd complete it. 
and that you give us strength and power as we go forth, that we might be what you called us to be and do what you called us to do. So bless us tonight, Father. Fill us with your spirit and your strength. Thank you for illuminating your word and send us forth in the joy of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.